This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 5th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. What is dark money? How did it affect the 2016 election? And the definition of the term may not be precisely clear, but Luke Wachab of the Center for Competitive Politics says the term itself is really a misnomer, and to the extent dark money is a problem in elections, it may not be a problem worth solving, and the solutions would implicate your free speech rights. You've written that dark money now accounts for, or at least in the 2016 election, accounted for less than 3% of total spending in those elections. We can't call it campaign spending uh, for reasons that we'll get into. But first of all, what is uh, this scourge uh, upon our democracy, dark money? Uh, Well, that's a very good question to ask. And I worry that too many times people don't really pause to think, what is dark money really? Um, dark money is a is a pejorative label that has uh, that people have come up with for uh, spending by a certain sect of nonprofit group that is able to engage in a, a limited amount of speech about campaigns and candidates without uh, disclosing all of their donors to the Federal Election Commission in the way that candidates and PACs have to. Uh, and there are there are good reasons for this, and many of the groups that are labeled dark money groups are really well-known, long-standing organizations like uh, like the uh, National Rifle Association or uh, Planned Parenthood, the Sierra Club. Um, so I think a lot of the times it's misleading the label, um, but the idea is that uh, groups that do not report all of their donors over $200 to the Federal Election Commission, uh, that these groups still have a very limited role, like you said, less than 3% of spending in the 2016 election that these groups were responsible for. Um, but because they don't disclose their donors, they are sometimes tagged as dark money and the, the implication is given that uh, this undermines democracy in some way because voters ought to know uh, who is uh, attempting to influence their vote. Um, but as we found uh, in every election cycle that we've looked at since we've had these uh, disclosure laws which really started in uh, the 1970s. Um, uh, certainly over the last six cycles, which is what we focused on, uh, so-called dark money has never accounted for even 5% of total spending. So it's really a very small subset of speech about campaigns that is coming from these groups. All right. So when we talk about what makes a group their spending dark money, Presumably, we're talking about 501c4s, which are groups that do not uh, disclose their donors but can talk about candidates and often are set up specifically to talk about elections and candidates for specific purposes. 527 groups, what are those? Uh, 527s are uh, your traditional political action committees and and also uh, super PACs would fall under that distinction. These are groups that uh, do have to uh, disclose their donors, but they are still considered uh, by some to be outside groups insofar as they are, you know, not the candidates or the political parties themselves. Okay, so that so we can't call super PACs dark money, can we? Because they do disclose their donors. Exactly, and that's one of the the major myths about super PACs is that they don't disclose their donors, but in fact they do. Um, and so we can even look at those at, at the data from those donors and and come up with additional. Uh, uh, conclusions about super PACs, for instance, that um, a lot of people were concerned that because these groups can accept corporate money, whereas candidates and parties uh, cannot in, on, under most circumstances, that 
um, that corporations would really seek to exploit this and would be major funders of super PAC advocacy. But in fact, uh, it, individuals make up the overwhelming majority of donations to super PACs uh, and corporations have shown that they are uh, pretty fearful of alienating, uh, of alienating customers, at least for-profit ones. So um, what we tend to find is that nonprofit advocacy groups uh, are the ones that are more likely to potentially uh, want to get involved in campaigns in, in, a more, uh, uh, in a more public way. So um, they're the ones that are more likely to make these sorts of expenditures. And, and so the nonprofit groups get termed dark money, but the super PACs, because they disclose their donors, are not. And they, they go into the 95% plus money that we, we can uh, say came from this group, and they're supported by these donors. So is the definition of uh, dark money stable uh, among groups who uh, use the pejorative term uh, for this outside spending? No, uh, it really is not. Um, you know, we've been talking about 501c4s, these groups that are permitted to engage in limited political activity. But especially if you look towards the states, a lot of the people who think that we need stricter disclosure laws also want to apply those laws to 501c3 nonprofits. And those are groups that federal law already prohibits them from engaging in, in campaign activity. So um, this this dark money idea has uh, has really grown into something much broader where, you know, anything that someone could deem political under that, you know, very sort of broad nebulous label uh, is potentially going to be tagged as dark money um, by, uh, by, by groups that oppose, you know, whatever public stance they're taking. Okay. So uh, it's not a clear definition of what it actually constitutes. It's so perhaps not a fair characterization for a lot of groups. A lot of 501c3s engage in uh, advocacy on behalf of public policy, like the Cato Institute, like the Center for Competitive Politics. Are these groups, the ones that you and I work for, considered dark money groups by the you know the mainstream of people who use that term. Uh, I I think many people would would say that uh, you know um, among the groups uh, and organizations that are are pushing for expansions into this area of law. Um, I mean, when you, when you consider that over ninety five percent of of political spending is disclosed, I think that starts to put in perspective uh, really what a radical, uh, almost absolutist view that groups pushing for more disclosure have, you know, like it, it's one thing to say that we should know who's spending money in campaigns. Uh, it's another to say that 95% disclosure is uh, not, not good enough somehow. You know, similarly, you know, everyone would like there to be no crime, uh, but obviously we would not support all of the measures that would be necessary to try to get to no crime because we know we couldn't succeed and we don't want a cop on every street corner and that's the type of uh, regulation of political speech that's really being advocated for is that cop on every street corner type mentality. Um, so I, because, again, I think that, that that idea that we should know who's spending money uh, in, to try to influence votes um, ha, has gotten I, – I think that's a valuable value to have. But there are other values that we have in democracy like we want it to be easy for people to participate. And we want to have a lot of speech and we want it to be easy for people to hear different views about candidates. Um, and so to have that balance uh, and, and to have those nonprofit groups contributing less than 5% of our campaign speech, um, I think it, 
to term that a problem, as a lot of people have, I think has a lot to do with the pejorative labels that have been put on this stuff and not an actual well-considered view of how do we regulate the political process to balance all of the different values and concerns that we have about having a fair and functioning democracy. And of course, if you care about rights, then it is like the right to uh, spend your own money advocating ideas that you care about, uh, certainly a, a disclosure to the federal government about your spending uh, is at the very least problematic. Yeah. Um, you know, every American has the right to support causes they believe in without harassment or intimidation. And, you know, if you look at what these disclosure laws do, uh, if you contribute over $200 in sum to a candidate or a political committee, it's, it's your name, it's your home address, it's your employer. Um, these are things that a lot of people don't want to put out there right next to their political views, whether it's they don't want their boss or potential future employers looking at this stuff or, you know, family or community issues uh, that they don't want to have to be, you know, front and center wearing all their beliefs on their sleeve. To a lot of people, politics is, is a private thing. Um, and so is it really something where we want to close off every avenue to support groups that are engaged in advocacy work? Um, do we want people who are, you know, sensitive about their privacy or people who are, you know, potential targets of harassment to just be silent um, because that's, you know, that's really the alternative. So at the state level, at the federal level, are there efforts being undertaken now or is this pejorative of, of dark money and the efforts against it largely just a rhetorical one right now? Uh, at the state level, there's very much a real push in a lot of legislatures to expand disclosure uh, laws. Sometimes these are successful, sometimes not. Um, sometimes these laws get sued, sometimes by the Center for Competitive Politics. Um, but you know, to give you an example of some of the very basic uh, advocacy activities that, that we have seen groups get caught up in disclosure laws for, uh, we represented a, a nonprofit in Delaware that published a voter guide that didn't tell you who to vote for, had every candidate on the ballot, listed all these different issues. It wasn't one of those, you know, slanted, this one guy gets an A in everything, the other guy gets an F in everything. Um, it was, you know, just a purely informational voter guide, uh, nonpartisan from a nonprofit. And um, they were told that if they wanted to publish that or continue publishing that, because they always had, that they were going to have to comply with this new state disclosure law, uh, even though they, they, it, it's kind of nonsensical. It's like, what political message are their donors supporting if the communication doesn't even tell you who to support or oppose? Um, that's how far this thing has gotten at the state level, this, this sort of climate of fear around dark money. At, at the federal level, there was a big push following the Citizens United decision in 2010 uh, to pass a big law that would have greatly expanded the number of groups and the kinds of groups that have to put up with these PAC-like regulations. Um, but that failed and in recent years hasn't gotten quite as much attention. Um, and uh, this administration has not uh, made that an issue on their agenda really. So it, it hasn't come up as much at the federal level. But certainly there are a lot of active organizations that this is what they care about. And uh, on the state level, they're, they're incredibly active. You mentioned uh, a lot of groups that might fall under the uh, category of uh, dark money, even though they are 501c3 nonprofits and are, for the most part, prohibited from engaging in any type of 
uh, direct political advocacy. The most notable one that you left out is the NAACP, which has a history of of this kind of compelled disclosure. Yeah, the, the NAACP was at the center of the uh, landmark Supreme Court ruling in the civil rights era that uh, really sort of established this principle or clarified in any way that um, people generally have a right to support groups uh, nonprofit groups privately because uh, in in certain cases, and this was one of them, you know, where the state of Alabama had demanded that the NAACP turn over its member list, uh, the Supreme Court uh, certainly understood what that was about and that this was as effective a means of silencing that group in that area as it would be to just pass a law, you know, outright censoring them. So, uh, you know, and I think that that's an important lesson to keep in mind because at different times, you know, given the political fights of the day, the groups that have to be concerned about this are going to change from time to time. And so, you know, for instance, during the, you know, during the Obama administration, it was very much conservative groups uh, and particularly uh, critics of uh, the Affordable Care Act who were very concerned that the IRS or that other campaign finance uh, laws were going to be used against them and make it hard for them to get their message out. If you go back to the, the civil rights era, it's obviously very different groups then. And now, you know, under the Trump administration, there's a good chance that uh, it will be, again, a, a different set of groups that are concerned about preserving this liberty interest. So there's always shifting coalitions on this. Uh, and as time goes on, um, you know, maybe we'll start to see people questioning this sort of dark money mentality more because it really is just a scare tactic. Luke Wacob is a senior policy analyst at the Center for Competitive Politics. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.